Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego, and I'm joined, as always, by the managing editor, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. I don't think our listeners know this, but every time you say the managing editor, I do like this little shoulder dance. Yes. <laughs> it's good. a good vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And reporter Jacob McQueen. <laughs> Wow, don't sound so disappointed. <laughs> Where's your shoulder dance? I, I, With that I, intro. Yeah, how am I supposed to do a delighted shoulder dance when it sounds like I just swatted your milkshake out of your hand? <laughs> coming up on the show this week, the rain keeps coming. The region is getting drenched once again, and some neighborhoods remain in crisis. Some homes have been ruined and people are displaced we used to do a hero of the week, and this one would have been easy. A local spear fisherman saved his street from worse damage and devastation last week when he dove down and cleared a drain. We did that story. City leaders say they were bound by regulations against clearing some critical channels, and we've spent a lot of time, as others have, examining that claim. Our environmental reporter got a different take about the regulations standing in the way or not. We'll explain. The council president said now is the time for a tax. And that means now is the time for me to explain some things. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Taxes, fees, and how they all get passed. I got you. Finally, a lot of homeless folks are in crisis and go to hospitals for help. But a new story by Lisa Halverstadt shows just how ill-equipped hospitals are to help them after they're done being treated. It's going to be a good show. Stay with us. Okay, we have a couple of things to talk about before we get into the content of the show. Uh, first off, next week is Voice of San Diego's 19th, 19th anniversary of its launch, which is crazy. But today, February 1st, 2024, 
marks 10 years since the death of our founder, co-founder, Neil Morgan. I uh, just realized that today. And that guy, that guy, you think I'm poetic? You think do, do, I'm good with words? Do I? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you think that. He would send notes after like we did something good. You know, after he'd left the organization, kind of, um, you know, spent a lot less time with us, he would still send us notes after we wrote something that he liked or whatever. And it was just gorgeous. It'd be like two lines of like how it made him feel, how important it was to the community. And it was always just like so special mm. to get one of those. Miss that guy. Uh, he had a good vision. He had a good run as a newsman, old, old school newsman in San Diego. Uh, RIP to Neil Morgan, and we will be recognizing our anniversary and everything else with our show, right? Live podcast. We'll be at Modern Times Beer and Coffee in Point Loma on February 8th. So there's a little disagreement about whether we launched on the 9th or the 8th, uh, but I I think it's, I always go with the 9th. So. I would say 9th because I hate even numbers. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Okay. What, so just so go with nine. Where, where does that disagreement come from? Do people just do they just bad memories? Forget. Oh, I, okay. I, I think <laughs> I think that the stories might have gotten the website might have gone live the night before, uh, but the ninth is when everybody like read it and stuff. So the the organization formed in two thousand four. Okay, but the launch was right after the new year in February. So I see. We'll have food, uh, beer. We had a show at Modern Times a long time ago. And uh, it was led by former co-host of the show, Andy Keats. And now he's coming back to talk about big projects in the city. We'll probably have to talk about this stormwater stuff. He had done a lot of research on that stuff while he was here. Uh, we'll get his take on some of that. Uh, we, may, we, we want it to be a great show, big show. So tell a friend, get your tickets at vosd.org slash events. Again, that's vosd.org slash events. We'll see you there. Okay, we have an update uh, on the show that we talked about last week, uh, some issues we went through. We, we told everybody that the Metropolitan Transit System was going to have a big report released last week about why it fired Grecia Figueroa, its former, what is it, uh, public information specialist, mm -hmm. and uh, what it did, whether it had any relationship with, that firing had any relationship with, Nathan Fletcher, the former chairman of the organization, and of course, former county supervisor, and the scandal that led to his down, downfall. And so this report was going to come out. Remember, the report wouldn't exist without our reporting after the scandal broke, saying, like, are you guys going to look into this and reveal why she was fired and what you knew when you knew it? And they mm -hmm. did commission that independent report, and that report did come out. And you and I, Andrea, did do uh, a list of takeaways from that report, we read it so you didn't have to. And uh, and there was a lot of interesting stuff in there. We're, what, what stood out for you? So I think we talked about last week, and we've been reporting these sorts of questions that we've had as an organization, uh, putting it into context in the morning report for readers. But basically, we had two big questions, like what happened between them, which we talked about last week's episode, um, and why was she fired? Um, you know, when did they know the things that they that came out in this lawsuit yeah. and so 
The report, I think overall, they've interviewed um, the head of HR, her direct managers, the CEO. Not uh, her. Not her. And not him. And not him. Uh, He provided written responses to their questions. And some of them were like, no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think they did? Well, that's what happens when you. um, It said in the report that her like attorneys wanted like certain. I don't know, like certain things like they wanted to be in the room. They Mm -hmm. wanted to record. They wanted access to some of the interviews. And so the people conducting the investigation said that that was not like a common or best practice Mm -hmm. in these types of investigations. And it just seemed like they just didn't, you know, they couldn't figure it out. And so they didn't interview her. Um, But they interviewed all these people. And what the report lays out is that Nathan Fletcher had like no role in why she was fired. Um, they all talk about like performance issues and how, you know, they felt like she was not very organized and she had all these things and blah, blah, blah. But there was one really interesting moment uh, for me in that report and finding was that when uh, Grecia was brought in to uh, Jeff, who is the HR person for MTS, when she was brought into his office, he told her like they were considering firing her. Or what was the correct? They were interested, interested. in terminating her employment. <laughs> Such a strange and way to go. Negoti- yeah. It's like I w- I'm interested in, in, in asking you out on a date. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm interested in breaking up. Yeah. 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 What are uh, your thoughts? And then and negotiating a separation yes. agreement with you, yes. which is not anything I've ever seen. Like you get you. You're all if you're going to fire somebody, you're you lined up like. Yeah. Or you should be lined up with everything, and yes. and you know if you're going to give them a separation agreement, you give it to them. If they want to come back, something else, then you do that. Yeah, and usually, like what people like take their stuff from their desks and all this stuff. Like there's a process. You don't like talk about I'm interested in firing. You. Right. So but what okay. he drives home is that he did not actually fire her on that day when yes. she has been telling everybody that she was fired. Which like she aligns and connects to Nathan Fletcher because that's the day he announced that he was going to run for state Senate. So right. she says, Nathan Fletcher announces that he's running for state Senate. I get fired the same day. Coincidence? Yeah. That's like her argument, right? Right. Um, but basically like MTS, uh, Jeff from HR is like, no, I, no, no, no. I didn't fire her on that day. I just talked to her about like, we're interested in firing <laughs> her ideal, that day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, that happens. She goes on to send a coworker a text message letting them know, I just got laid off. This is huge. This is big. Um, she doesn't m- mention Nathan Fletcher by name, but she like hints that um, this is big. This involves a count, or uh, this involves a board member of MTS, and um, hint, hint. It's somebody who just made an announcement. Yes, mm-hmm. like uh, cough, coughs. Yeah. Um, and you know the person that she's texting is clearly uncomfortable in these interactions. Uh, does not want like he's like I don't want to get involved in drama. Like please don't tell me whatever. But this person goes on to tell um, Grecia's. Uh, boss like she just texted me this like here you go and so her boss Mark Olson then figures out puts you know two and two together who made a big announcement who's our board member uh Nathan Fletcher and um so then he takes this these messages um to MTS's CEO and uh general General counsel and you see that in the report and okay that happens and 
So at that moment, it's like, huh, shouldn't that have been a huge red flag? Like, wait a minute, we're interested in firing this person. They haven't actually fired haven't her yet. Fired her. As they wanted to make clear, uh-huh. they hear that she's now connected what they're doing to her to the chairman of their board. And yeah, alarm bells don't go off. Don't go off or or you don't want to deal with it. I don't know what happened, but nothing happens. But they're talking about the two top people in the organization, Sharon Cooney and the this, the general counsel of mm-hmm. the organization see these and they're like, wow, this is, this is something. Well, okay, yeah. They haven't actually fired her yet. And then they don't do anything with it. No. And then she gets an official termination letter. Uh, like 10 days later. 10 days later. So so in that 10 days, they haven't actually fired her. And rather than investigate what she's saying about the, this, this, what she thinks is the reason for this, they don't do anything no. to look into that at all. They don't even ask him if he knows something about her. Yeah, like... I don't know. For me, I, like I'm a manager now, right? And if something like that happened, I would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Put stop. the brakes. Let me just, what is that about? Why is this person who is like, yes, someone who would interact with our board chair, but not necessarily, right? She's not like, she's not the CEO who's like constantly with the board chair. Mm-hmm. So I'd say like, why is this person in this position saying that her firing is related or somehow related to our board chair? Like, that's weird. Let me find, I don't know. I would I would be extremely curious to know like well, why this person is saying that. Well, it seems like from, you know, all of the officials at at MTS and even this person that Grecia is contacting, they are just a deeply incurious organization. <laughs> I mean, I cannot imagine somebody like s- texting me what, what Grecia texted and I being sh- like, no, don't tell me. I don't want drama. I'd be like, send everything. <laughs> yeah. I want all. You would I, immediately get like three back-to-back calls the from me. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, no, well, but this person didn't want to get involved and that's, that's yeah, their that's, thing. That's, I don't understand is what I'm saying. That's true. <laughs> we don't I because we're, we're cheese muscles. Yeah. We're cheese muscles so we don't understand but um yeah it just it blew my mind when i was reading it i like read it over i called you and we were talking about it and i was like and then not only that like they never like they're never like wait pause what's going on here like the investigation says that eventually like gracias lawyer sends mts and nathan fletcher a letter letting them know like you know like i'm representing her something's coming like please hold all your documents and then um, CEO Sharon Cooney, yeah, yes. I, I, this is a baffling <laughs> thing to me. I do not even. <laughs> what 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 was she thinking? She texts Fletcher uh-huh. after you know Figueroa's lawyers send send letters to MTS and to Fletcher. She texts Fletcher, quote, FYI, we have a terminated employee, Grecia, contacting you. Our counsel is aware. Sorry to involve you. Sorry. So. <laughs> So alarm bells don't go off. They don't stop this termination and look into what she's saying. They go and the, the one step they take to check with him is to send sorry My to bad. involve you yeah. in this. It's just, yeah, it's it, your your point, deeply and curious, is really good. Like they're they don't have any interest in why she would be telling people that she has that this is connected to him at this moment and or any interest in figuring that out they're just like she's she must be uh she must be you know just making stuff up Probably sorry to involve employee, you. Yeah. or or they just understand what that means and 
like that employee, you don't want to hear more. Well, I don't, and then the investigation goes on to say that then there's a phone call between Sharon and Nathan where, you know, they talk about this and he says, like, it's not uncommon for me to be named in lawsuits, um, you know, because I'm board chair or whatever. Um, it, like he gives no like, hey, um, you know, something I, you should know, something you should know here. <laughs> um, but that doesn't happen after a board meeting. I had this thing with yeah. this lady <laughs> next door. Yeah. To where you are now. That would yeah. be a I don't know, it, but, but that, but that to, to moment, have. I mean, there's lots of parts in the report that are really interesting. Yeah. I mean, like you pointed out, she was fired and well, she was hired. And then the way they do it, they do like a performance review after like six months, right? So the first six months and mm-hmm. then a year. Yeah. Yeah. And then as with any like sort of review, right, they give you positive comments and like they rate you with something and you always have stuff you want to work on right like you want to improve as an employer here are a couple of things here's some feedback things you can improve on but every year they gave her like good reviews they said the first time was just below exceeds re- job requirements mm-hmm. the 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 first six months it was barely below exceeds job requirements at the one year mark it was exceeds job requirements and then at the next year mark it was exceeds job requirements it was the ne- it was that's when her relationship with Nathan Fletcher starts and then the one last one they give her was uh meets job requirements but they include a line that says if you don't make immediate improvement in this these things we've identified mm-hmm. your job is in jeopardy mm-hmm. so uh, there are multiple very strange things there i mean w- w- one if you are meeting job requirements, how is your job in jeopardy? Yeah, that's great. If you don't improve. I mean, that's very strange to me. Yeah. Like, and, it, and it's also very strange the fact that it clearly shows that after beginning her, you know, whatever you want to call it with, with Fletcher, that is when her job performance starts to decline. Yeah. And also, not only that, but she was given like a new title, which you can mm-hmm. assume is like new, you know, job new responsibilities. New job responsibilities. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of things that stand out here. Before they decide to actually terminate her employment. Now, she is an at-will employee, can be let go at any time. But in order to protect yourself as an employer from other sort of you know uh, lawsuits and stuff that might come after letting an employee go, there's usually a ramp up of, of progressive reporting about what they need to do before it's mm-hmm, time mm-hmm. to actually pull that um, that step out. And so... They make a decision at one point where Jeff Stumbo, the head of HR, says to this manager, Marcos Olson, who has never fired anyone before, that one option we have now is to do an actual performance improvement plan where we're going to outline exactly what you have to improve over exactly what period of time in order to save your job. And uh, that's usually the last step you make before uh, a firing for performance reasons. And Olson says, no, she's just going to improve a little bit for a while and then it's going to get worse again. And they decide not to do that. And then when, when they meet with, him, with, the, with her to talk to her about this interest they have in terminating her employment, Olson doesn't go. It's just Stumbo. Which I think, look, if you're going to fire somebody, you need to look at them in the eye and make that decision about why and and tell them, you know, what you're doing at that moment. That's that's the only honorable thing for a, a, an employee, a manager to do at that moment. And I think like 
So he doesn't. He's never fired anybody. He gives it to this guy who's just like, I'm interested in firing you. <laughs> and then they find out that night and nobody does anything. They don't stop it. They go forward with the firing. It's just, it's a wild sequence of events. I think like put put the relationship or, you know, assault on the side, right? I think, you know, we've talked about that. It's, you know, from her original lawsuit and what we saw compared to the entire dump of Instagram messages, I think like it's much more complicated. Um, the lawsuit painted a picture that like, you know, it's a different picture when you actually look at the messages between them. There's definitely flirtation between both of them. Um, you know, Nathan was not upfront with MTS's CEO about like, hey, you know, just so you know, I had a relationship with this woman. Okay, let's put that all aside. You have an agency, public agency, who hired this um, like young Latino woman only Spanish speaker, apparently, that they had at that time. In that group, at least. In yeah. that group. Um, she's performing. She needs things to improve on. Uh, they gave her a new title, which I'm assuming comes with a few more responsibilities, um, and then end up deciding that, like, no, let's just get rid of her. And, you know, throughout the report, there's, like, other sections where the investigators interviewed her coworkers. You're forgetting one thing they discovered in the path. What? That she was underpaid. Oh, yes. She was underpaid. <laughs> they give her a raise. When they say that she's just meeting job requirements, they give her a raise of 3%. Because she was underpaid. Mm -hmm. um, her coworkers say, like, they all kind of struggled with her, right? Like, she seems like she was a very free-flowing employee. Like, she knew what she wanted to do, but, like, maybe she wasn't the best planner or something. And yeah. that put people in positions where, like, you know, they had to scramble to get something done for her or whatever. We've all worked with a person like that. But um, it's just like... You looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> no, not you. Um, <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> not you, Scott. Um, but yeah, we've all worked with somebody like that. But I mean, this is an agency, like, they're one Spanish speaker. They were underpaying her, like... They what? gave her a new job And then they're like, you know what? Let's get rid of her. Like, it's too much. It's too much work, like, to, to help her. Or it, I just can't understand that. And then to, like, find out that she somehow thinks that her firing has to do with your board member and that doesn't, like, well, and scream at you is insane. You know, you stack all of that up and put it next to the fact that this is the first person that Olsen has ever fired. I mean, I'm sorry. That's just. That doesn't pass the smell test for me personally. <laughs> well, the and the report includes all of these takes from board members and the mayor Todd Gloria, and they're all like, "We think this agency's done fantastic." And it's just like, <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. You can see all of that at vsd.org/scott. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. I don't think the community of Southcrest has ever had this many reporters and journalists around 
as it has over the last couple of weeks as people really digest what happened to Southcrest, Shelltown, these areas of southeastern South San Diego that were brutally flooded by the January 22nd, was it? Uh, deluge. It was just an intense amount of rain in a short period. And uh, areas that are always getting flooded with heavy storms got flooded way more than they had been. And now everybody's pointing fingers and honestly, I'm not sure that local leaders have really met the moment, you know, with like like the command sort of, we got this, we got you, we're here. And so there's a lot of really bad feelings stirring around, especially with this community that was devastated. Mackenzie Elmer went and found, uh, as there are in all of these sort of situations, uh, a hero. And it was a really great story that helped illustrate the problem too which was uh, there was a spear fisherman who noticed that he, he grew up in the area. He noticed that one of the drains wasn't working. He went to try to get it cleaned out. The guy, the firefighter's like, get out of here. Go. <laughs> That's our job or something, right? No, like, well, like, probably like, dude, don't be in the water. Yeah. We don't want to have to like rescue you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he goes back, he gets his wetsuit on and he goes and, and finds another drain digs it out and is able to stop the flooding and a whirlpool starts to, mm-hmm. to really drain it out. Great story. But also, why was the drain clogged? Could there not have been some resources to make sure it wasn't? Is it, is it what are we learning uh, about the drains and what are we still hoping to find out? Because uh, there is an area, as McKenzie noticed, uh, a canal sort of uh, stormwater drainage system that looked like a wetland, as it as it I guess is is considered in some ways, uh, of vegetation and and lots of stuff going on. They've just cleared it, so obviously they can clear it now. But the question is, why didn't they clear it before? Mm-hmm. What are we learning about that? Well, we're learning that the city of San Diego felt that there was all this red tape that they just couldn't pass. Right, uh, that there were state agencies that that disallowed the clearing of, of these sorts of drains without, of these sorts of canals, creeks, without a lot of, um, of, you know, official documentation and blah, blah, blah. But, but according to McKenzie Elmer's piece, state officials have said that the city of San Diego has had permission to clean, uh, creeks like Choyas for, for a long time. Well, here's what they said. This was Christmas McFadden, the department of stormwater leader at the city of San Diego, Uh, I believe talking at Lincoln High School after the extent of the damage and and catastrophe was sort of being absorbed by the community and the mayor was addressing with all kinds of public safety people uh, what had happened. And there was sort of an outrage from just the public and the media that were there about what happened. And here's what he said. So two things have to line up in order for us to maintain a flood control channel. We have to have the funding for it. And we have to secure environmental permits from the resource agencies, Fish and Wildlife Agencies, Army Corps of Engineers, etc. That is a years-long process. And at this point, the city has an inventory of about 200 different channel segments across the city. And we're currently funded to do about major maintenance on about four of those channels per year. And so we prioritize those channels and maintain the ones that we can. Um, but a lot of things have to align So in order for that to happen. That, that really stands out. There's... 200 or hundreds of these channels and they can only do that type of heavy maintenance work on four of them (laughs) and not that one now again mackenzie elmer asked one of the regulators that they're referring to there um and he was he said well the city does have clearance 
to do routine channel maintenance work in preparation for storms like these and has had that since 2021. The city can dredge a channel, cut down trees, or tear out exotic or invasive vegetation without additional permits under this authorization. Quote from, this is David Gibson again from the Water Quality Control Board. He said, we have made it easy for the city to be as flexible as possible. So there was an effort sort of the city say like, it's not our fault. They make us to get all these these permits. And then this guy's like, nah, you could have done it. And then they went and did it. And they said that they only did it because they had this emergency declaration. Mm. But I think there is some truth to all this, right? Like they do have some regulatory hurdles. They don't have the money to do it. But these questions are going to continue to dog the mayor, especially as the extent of the damage is really revealed. Now you talked to some folks in Southcrest and been following them, it was bad. It was devastating. Yeah. I also spoke with some residents in Stockton um, who told me that some, they didn't see as much flooding as they did in the Southcrest area, but they were like watching with anticipation, like just watching the water flow up. And they were like, do we leave? Do we stay? Like what happens here? I know some houses on that block were damaged, but um, just I can't imagine the anxiety. I mean, one of the residents I spoke to, we were talking and she was like, do you know where I can get sandbags? Like, we don't know what to do. Like, we've done our best to like clear any sort of drains that we see. Um, but she, you could just tell like she had extreme anxiety about the rains that we were getting today. I mean, it was, I, I, I visited Cesar Chavez Elementary School, which is on Beta Street, um, and spoke to the principal, walked around, you know, Beta Street, which was kind of the ground zero of this of this flooding. And it's it's hard to overstate just how surreal of a scene it was, right? You walk around and, and you see just a, a mud line on all of the cars, all of the houses. Every car is sitting open, trunks open, as they're just hoping these things will dry. All the cars are sitting kind of askew where you can just see that the water carried them away a bit. I mean, when I when I showed up at Cesar Chavez Elementary, I parked the car and I started walking to the school and I look over and see a tow truck that is attempting to tow a just beat up um, red SUV out of the creek bed. And I walk over and there are three cars in that creek bed right here, all kind of like pushed up against each other. And further on down the creek, you could see two more cars. I mean, there were five cars in this small stretch of creek and and you know there are people carrying um you know items out of the houses stripping the walls taking wood out and speaking to that principal you know he's he was at school that day with students and and they're just standing there watching the water rise everywhere around them luckily for them uh they really only experienced flooding in in kind of the the field area and and the playground but they were preparing for the worst i mean he was he said that he was asking his his janitors like hey do we have pumps i mean what can we what can we do um and and so it 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 really is shocking the the degree of damage and regardless of 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 whether or not there were there was red tape that the city was unable to cross i don't think that's going to be enough for many of the residents who've lost absolutely everything yeah to hear to hear people say that i mean looking at the images even some of the images that we included in mckenzie's story um, about this uh, cleaning of the creek that could have happened before. I mean, it's just like people's homes, entire lives, just yeah. out on the street, like garbage. I mean, it's so sad. Like this was stuff that was in their home safe. You yeah. know, like it, it it wasn't going to be on the street yeah. if this hadn't happened. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. There were just little traces of 
people's lives all over. There's a uncomfortable history we should acknowledge as well about this. Uh, San Diego, of course, is a very segregated city. Some parts of the region and the city of San Diego are very white, and some are lots of population of people of color. And the reason for that is that there were areas of town, neighborhoods of town, where people of color could not live and could not own homes, could not get financing for homes. And there were areas of town where they were allowed to live, and particularly southeastern San Diego and Barrio Logan. And these two areas, Southcrest, Shelltown of southeastern San Diego, were part of those areas they could live. And just so happens, obviously, horrible historic coincidence that those are the areas that are most likely to flood, right? I, I'm sorry, that was not the area to add sarcasm in like, Obviously, those are areas that uh, some people with more privilege were able to avoid and say like, okay, you can you can have your homes there mm -hmm. because uh, that's not someplace they want to go. And so there is an uncomfortable sort of dual experience here. A lot of white neighborhoods did not experience anywhere close to this devastation. And a lot of, uh, of people of color are suffering this like, and this very devastating version, like if it were a fire, most likely their homeowner's insurance and renter's insurance would take care of it, no problem. Uh, but uh, floods are, are only covered with flood insurance and um, flood insurance is a whole different um, uh, you know, reality for a lot of people mm -hmm. and, and availability. And it's only available in some cases if, you're, uh, if you have a mortgage out there or you would even think to get it if you only had a mortgage that required it. So a uh, lot of things to work through. I think we're trying to get our arms around just how many people were um, uh, displaced because of what happened, how many structures and homes were completely 100% uh, damaged uh, based on what happened, how, mon how much is salvageable. But there's the ongoing things like mold. Like you fill a house full of water, you're gonna have a mold problem forever. And mm -hmm. those kinds of things are, are something uh, that are gonna take a long time to deal with. So we'll get our arms around that. Now, the city council, uh, at least parts of it are are furious. Uh, uh, Sean Elo Rivera has, uh, I think, really taken a stance that is going to um, take a city count or that's going to take city hall a, f a few months to deal with. He said and announced that he is going to now pursue a tax on November's ballot that would finally address this stormwater deficit. So, do you mind if I get into this a little bit? Mm -hmm. If you must. You know, after uh, you explained this to me, I was like driving home. I was trying to explain it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't going well is what you're saying? <laughs> no, like, because, you know, the best way to know sure. that you learned something is to, you know, be able to say it yourself. And sure. so I think I had some points, but then I lost some points. All right. Well, um, our former editor, Andrew Keats, did a good piece about the massive infrastructure deficit before he left of uh, that we have in San Diego. Now, an infrastructure deficit is not the same as a budget deficit. A budget deficit is where you're like spending more than you're bringing in. And so you better have reserves or you're going to go bankrupt, right? So that's, that's a budget deficit. You're spending more than you're bringing in and it leads to an imbalance. Now, a, uh, an infrastructure deficit is a is is the buildup of needs that have occurred because you haven't been paying for either maintenance or replacement of infrastructure. So uh, firehouses have a lot of leaky roofs, or streets have um, they they lose their you know they get more and more potholes to the point where you can't just 
uh, do an easy slurry seal on top, you have to do a full like repaving, right? These these infrastructure deficits are things that are wrong with our built environment that get worse and worse over time if you don't replace or repair them in a timely manner. And so we have this giant infrastructure deficit. But as as Andy observed a couple years ago, that infrastructure deficit could better be described as a stormwater deficit because two things have happened. One, we've let that stormwater system, all these canals, all these pumps, all of these drains, all of these culverts, all these different things that are used to make sure stormwater lands and is funneled out to the ocean as efficiently as possible are maintained and built the way that they need to be built. And the state came across with new mandates about how clean that water needs to be when it runs out into the ocean. And so when the city added up everything it would take to build and replace and repair all of these different systems, it found that that would be about $1.6 billion worth of projects that we don't have the money for. What's more, it would be about $250 million per year that we're short in like in not doing. I'm sure I can hear conservatives right now saying like, oh, come on, this is all union you know, stuff. Like there's, it's not that much. But even a lot of them agree that there's something there. It's just this, like maybe we're arguing about the extent or or some of the environmental sort of mandates that go along with that about making sure it's clean. So part of what we've learned over time in these in these cities is that you you we built these cities with all these like concrete canals that sort of send water quickly out into the ocean. But that means it's as dirty as possible as it's going out there, right? So the ideal is to have as many wetlands and other sort of grassy areas that naturally filter as it goes out. And so they're really working on that sort of two-part strategy, making sure it's as clean and efficient where it's supposed to be draining and making sure there's as much of that vegetation and other things that can clean it as it goes out. And so there were a couple of years ago, uh, a proposal and a little working group and the city council was really ramping up to put a stormwater initiative on the ballot. This used to be a big deal for the mayor. The mayor Todd Glory, when he was city council president, said in 2016 he would put forward this ballot measure. And so the idea has always been like, let's put forward something that will charge a tax based on how much property you own and use that to like build all these stormwater uh, system things. So they didn't do it. And there was a, there's kind of a curious reason why. You want me to get into that too? Yep. Well, let's hear it. Uh, so thanks for your validation. You're so, welcome. You're welcome. Uh, so, I know it means a lot to you. A few years ago, the state passed a, a law that was supposed to make it easier for, for these areas to raise a stormwater fee. You do pay a fee on your water bill related to stormwater. However, that is only uh, as it connects to your drinking water. So that's a fee that is, is imposed to sort of pay for things that are needed to protect drinking water from stormwater pollution. So it's still like potable, right? It's not to do all of these things related to stormwater. So people say like, we have this small fee already for stormwater. It hasn't been raised for a long time. That's separate from what is being proposed here. Do you know how much the fee is? It's like a dollar or something. It's a very minimal amount. And so the uh, the idea is to is to raise a bunch of money for this. Now the the city sort of backed off 
doing this uh, this initiative before because they wanted to see if the county went forward with its own um, you know stormwater fee increase without a vote of the people um, on this fee that the state said might be okay. Didn't happen. Hasn't happened yet. So now uh, it's sort of been percolating. Should it happen again or whatever? Well, now we have this flood and everybody. And now uh, uh, Shawnee Lo Rivera is like, we're got to do it. Now he has about five questions to answer at this point. If you want to pass a tax, as we've explained hundreds of times in this state, for specific purposes, you have to get a two-thirds vote of the people. The tax would uh, have to be uh, probably some version of a parcel tax that would be based on your property. So uh, the difference between a property tax and a parcel tax is a parcel tax is usually just a flat fee based on a parcel that you own, right? A property tax is usually a factor of how much your property is worth and based on when it was assessed, right? So, uh, you know, if, if you bought a house recently and it was a million dollars, then that's what the assessor will say it's worth. And you pay like basically 1% of that, which is what, $10,000 a year, right? So that's a property tax. A parcel tax would be you just pay one fee based on that parcel that you own. So this even gets more complex because they came up with ideas that said, well, let's look at each parcel and see how much of it is just concrete or like impermeable, you know, uh, something that just doesn't allow for the the stormwater to be absorbed and cleaned as it as it moves its way through um, the landscape. And so they thought, well, we could survey and we could give everybody just a sort of flat fee based on how much of their land is impermeable like that. Now, there would be some property owners that would say like, well, I... Uh, already did all this stormwater stuff. I already did all these different ditches and uh, filters and other things. So maybe I should get an exemption. So there's just a lot of questions. Are you going to do a parcel tax? Are you going to do a property tax? Are you going to give them exemptions if they've already done work? What about exemptions for low income? All kinds of stuff like that, that he has to answer now that he said, we're going to do this. And so his promise is, I'm going to put this forward. I'm going to do this. And uh, now the question is like, well, in what way? The other thing that's interesting is the mayor uh, and Raul Campillo, the city councilman, have been working for the last few months along with the Municipal Employees Association, the largest employee group at the city of San Diego, to come up with a, a full cent sales tax increase. And uh, and they've been trying to push that through. So are they going to do that and this? And uh, maybe. Like that would be that would be a really interesting ballot, right? The uh, and and so I think it's important for people to understand a couple of the dynamics there. This is a big proposal for him to make without any details yet on some of those questions. Well, so I I think it'll be really interesting to see how his council member colleagues respond to this. Uh, will will this be something they want to jump on and and support, or will they be worried that it conflicts with the other tax? Will the mayor be on board with this? Uh, again, the city's stormwater funding need alone outpaces the unfunded need of its roads, streets, sidewalks, parks, and buildings combined. That's how big this amount of money is or sort of infrastructure deficit this is compared to all the other things that we know it needs from libraries falling apart to uh, fire stations, roofs, and all kinds of stuff. So uh, it's a it's a big thing to tackle. I think you can almost hear again, like the 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 conservatives, like, oh, so your answer to this flood is a tax, like, shocking. <laughs> but 
Uh, but you know, this is a built-up need that a lot of people on both sides of the aisle have identified for a long time. Wait, so question. So he's pursuing a tax. Yeah. But why not a fee? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Your O was not surprised. <laughs> so a fee has to be a, a cities can impose fees if they want to if it's to pay for the thing that you pay the fee for. So if you're camping, you pay a fee to camp at the spot, you get the camping, all the things that go along with making a campsite work, right? So if you pay a toll on a bridge, it's paying for the bridge to to be maintained or whatever, or pay off the debt of the bridge, then, it, then that is. So you have to, if you have a fee that you can impose as a city or a county or a state that doesn't need a vote of the people, it has to be related to like what the actual person mm. paying the fee is doing. Yeah. or using a tax is uh is for things that the person might not use so it's you're paying something for the general benefit of the of the collective you know world and you may or may not use what it pays for and so there is an argument that the stormwater thing is a fee but again it's a legally dubious one that this the san diego city attorney decided like no it's it's not going to hold up in court it should be considered a tax mm. And so it, the best way to understand it is actually with this garbage situation. Remember, we uh, two years ago decided that the voters decided to allow the city to begin charging a fee the, uh, for garbage collection. The only reason they had to have a vote about that is because the city itself had a law that the voters passed a long time ago that said that you have to, uh, you can never charge a fee for garbage collection. And so we had to have a vote to get rid of that. But now the state law allows the city to impose a fee on garbage collection because the, you're paying a fee for them to take your garbage and they can impose that fee at whatever level they want and it doesn't have to be voted on by the public as a tax increase. Uh, but because this would be something that would benefit the whole and it wouldn't be clear that it would benefit just the people paying the fee, uh, this would be a stormwater tax and thus it would have to go to the, the voters. Now, there is a way that they could just charge this tax on people's property and just call it a general tax and then they could pass another measure that said we should bond and we should borrow a bunch of money to pay for stormwater things that just happens to equal this tax that we're going to charge and and they could try to do it at just 50 percent of the vote um but i think that uh that'll be all the uh, that's another question that they have to answer about what route they're pursuing hmm. you've done a good job Andrea, getting some freelancers. Doing everything. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. I love this. Uh, of getting freelancers involved. And one of them is the former uh, UT uh, weather reporter, Robert Cryer, who uh, has been doing a lot of work for us. And he did a piece. And this is a crazy stat. You want to read that? Yeah. <laughs> this is from Robert's story. Uh, it says, if this week's stormy pattern does continue as expected, combined with the record-breaking downpours of January 22nd, San Diego could record 75% of its annual average rainfall, which is 9.79 inches, in less than three weeks. It's a lot of water. Wow. A lot of water. We've been texting back and forth. Uh, Robert is so knowledgeable. I mean, he covered this for the UT. So, um, yeah, he, he's been tweeting about it. Might have another post for us. Good. Well, this is a plug to read um, a story on our site. Our Lisa Howerstadt did a piece about why so many providers and so many people, frankly, see people on the streets who look like they just left the hospital because they did just leave the hospital. And um, it is a really tough read in a sense of just how many people are suffering that she found. 
uh, that uh, had real problems that the, the hospitals either didn't help them with or, or couldn't figure out before they let them out. And then they had to go back and back and back. The stats are, are just overwhelming about just how many homeless individuals are going to hospitals and then how the hospitals just have no apparent sort of single hotline or anything they can call to make sure that some of the people who are leaving the hospital have some place to go. I mean, I think I've had surgeries before. You guys have had accidents or different things before you've been in hospitals. When you leave, you usually have somebody with you to make sure that you settle in and, and not. And so the idea of leaving and then just going right to the street is itself unsettling. But that's the reality of thousands of people now. And you want to like, there. You, this is one of those stories you want to look for like villains in but the hospitals aren't an easy villain. Like they have to serve people that come in and out uh, as well. Yeah, treat emergencies and such. So uh, it was a, a tough story, uh, but an important one. Uh, and you can see uh, her story and the pictures that Peggy Petey took at vosd.org slash Lisa. Thanks for listening to the Voice San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in San Diego that is having a live show February 8th. Again, get your tickets at VOSD.org slash events, VOSD.org slash events. You know how fun these are. Come on out. Uh, I'm excited to see you. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrea Lopez Villafania is our managing editor. Jacob McQuinney is our education reporter. Nate Johns, our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.